here's Jeff. All right. You know, uh, oh, someone put the speakers in my sitting place. Hey, welcome to Central Vineyard, guys. And uh, I hope you guys have found a way to disrupt your week to enjoy the leaves and stuff like that. I got to be honest, like last year, I kind of skipped it. I was in the middle of a, a couple of things uh, thinking about and stuff, and I literally just missed the leaves. And uh, encourage you to enjoy it because it generally lasts about what? 12 days, 14 days of the high, high leaving and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's one of the coolest things about Ohio. You know, Indiana cut down all their trees, so we kept ours, so we're cool. Anyway, um, welcome to Central Vineyard. Um, I'm Jeff, and uh, kind of the founding pastor here, along with my wife, Adrian. And uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We try to hit a gospel, like a Jesus biography, every other year or something like that, because essentially 90% of the ways people get the Bible wrong is they don't read it through the lens of the Jesus Gospels. And if you, uh, what they come up with, it, if you don't understand that everything is either looking towards Jesus or everything is a footnote about following Jesus after that, then you come up with some weird beliefs. And believe it or not, if most of us only know America, right? America is... Uh, in its short 200 plus years has been able to produce more weird takes on Jesus than all of the globe combined over 2,000 years. Literally, they call, uh, some people refer to as theologians refer to America as a birthplace of cults. And part of it is we mix the ethos of you're not the boss of us with pick up your cross and follow me, which implicit in that statement that Jesus says, as boss. So, uh, basically, the essence of Christianity is Jesus' is boss. That's another way of saying Jesus is Lord. And we're the you're-not-the-boss-of-me culture, ultra-independent. So, we come up with all these weird versions of what we call Christianity. And today, kind of uh, keeping with the theme uh, uh, yesterday, is one talking about getting Jesus wrong or mistaking Jesus. And one of my premises today is that there's two very religious groups in America, two religious ki kinds of religious people in America that really uh, don't get Jesus. Maybe three, and I'll, I'll, I'll just stick with three. How about that? Three is, I think, uh, very secular people who just admire the literary nature and the kind teachings of Jesus. I think, get Jesus wrong. Not because Jesus isn't an amazing teacher and a genius, but because the teachings kind of fall apart without the other element. And I have a lot of pagan friends, and if you don't, you probably should have some pagan friends. I don't mean that as a pejorative term, by the way. I'm talking about someone who generally has a pantheistic viewpoint, and it may be just someone, a general New Age, laws of attraction type person, or it may uh, be someone who's either a solitary practitioner of Wicca or someone who's maybe in a coven. Generally, covens don't last that long. They kind of, if you think churches can divide very quickly, uh, uh, ain't got nothing on a good old coven. That's why so many people within, uh, you know, practice of Wicca or witchcraft identify as solitary practitioners, which meaning you only have to get along with yourself and even that kind of stuff. So, but most people involved in some form of like pantheistic uh, spirituality will give deep respect to Jesus. In fact, a lot of them will expound more respect to the teachings of Christ than the third group I'm talking about. That's Christians. 
Christians get Jesus wrong. I'm not saying all Christians, but I'm saying uh, it's not difficult at all to find someone that identifies as a Christian that does not have like this transparent or apparent enthusiasm for the teachings of Christ. I literally know someone that was cautioned by elders in their church for teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, just saying, hey, you got to be especially careful when you teach the Sermon on the Mount, because it's very easy that you might come off like a commie. And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is not communist. It, it's promoted people sharing in the name of Jesus, not sharing in the name of there is no God. So it's very different from communism. Uh, but, uh, and I know people who've literally gotten in trouble at Christian schools for just teaching the unadorned gospel without caveats. And actually, in the Western world, and this is uh, America, and to some extent really uh, began in England in the Victorian times, people came up with clever ways to teach the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus in such a way that it didn't apply to us. That Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. He paid the penalty for our sins. But his keynote address on the ethics of the kingdom does not apply for today. So you literally have entire seminaries and theological traditions that are devoted to explaining one of two things about Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. And that is, A, that they're an interim ethic, meaning that was for the Jesus age, not for the church age of the seven ages, you know, we kind of separate church history into, so they had an expiration date, like milk. Or the other one is, actually, these are just there to show you you suck. Because once you try to live this out, you won't be able to do it and be perfect, and then you'll know you need grace, and it's fruitless to try to get saved by good works. And they turn it into an algebra equation. But people that read the Bible like you read any other great piece of literature kind of get the vibe of the story and say, wait, Jesus actually meant this stuff. In fact, there's a lot of pagan people that believe Jesus meant what he said about his ethical teachings. A lot of pagan people believe what he, he meant what he said about his uh, ethical teachings. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very secular people who are maybe atheists or neo-atheist agnostics who believe Jesus meant what he said about his ethical stances. They just don't think he was really the son of God and come up with multiple systems to either say he was deluded, crazy, or people added that bit later. Like that was more Thomas Jefferson's idea. But I think all three are very dangerous perspectives to have on Jesus. And depending on what church I'm talking to or what community I'm talking to, people will be offended of saying, me saying one perspective is dangerous or another's perspective. So I do think the, 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 the pagan perspective on Jesus alone, I think is dangerous and can be downright toxic. I think the uh, Christendom take, the, kind, the, the version of Christianity that Kierkegaard wrote his attack on Christendom, which if you read that book, it's very old, but it applies perfectly to the United States right now. Uh, that uh, people claiming the name of Christ and uh, even affirming all the supernatural works of Christ and the resurrection of Christ oftentimes get Jesus, they miss the gospel too because they fractionalize it. So depending on where we're coming from today, I, I don't want to pretend that we're a homogenous group. I know a lot of people I know that ha who uh, even are, uh, you know, a part of, you know, different Christian churches, but they probably have more of a pagan take on Jesus, and they really affirm, uh, they're very spiritual, 
very spiritual and they like going to church, but they have more of a solitary practitioner, choose your own adventure, uh, you know, kind of cafeteria style of engaging Jesus. So, um, good quote, and you know, uh, some people uh, don't agree that uh, this person was accurately quoting Gandhi, um, but I think if you look at other teachings and sayings of Gandhi that this probably is true. And that was uh, Dr. J.H. Holmes, who was a professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College. He also uh, co-founded both the NAACP and the ACLU. Uh, and uh, he spent a significant amount of time building a friendship with Gandhi. And uh, you may have heard, seen memes where they take little bits of this and put it in a meme, or people quote it fractionally. I want to try to read his entire quotation of Gandhi for you to hear the, uh, Ga uh, of Gandhi, and he says this, uh, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. I believe in the teachings of Christ, but you on the other side of the world do not. I read the Bible faithfully and see little in Christendom that those who profess faith pretend to see. The Christian above all others are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come among aliens to exploit them, talking about colonialism, which he knew something about being in India. Uh, watch the movie. Um, they came to, among aliens to exploit them for their own good and cheat them to do so. Their prosperity is far more essential to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of others. The Christians are the most warlike people. Now, I do not agree with that because unlike Gandhi, I'm not defining Christianity by Western Christendom. And Gandhi, uh, I think, was being a little dishonest here because Christianity went to India before it went to the West and has a robust tradition today that is not like what Gandhi describes. So I'm not just saying Gandhi, everything he says is golden, all right? I think he makes an observation about Western Christianity that is very telling. Once again, not true, because try to uh, find for me an effective uh, abolitionist movement or uh, orphan care organization that wasn't born out of the Jesus story or, you know, even a, a, the most robust and early um, organizations that engaged human trafficking. I'm not talking about the fake charities that say they help human trafficking that are really, uh, you know, looking for kids in pizza parlors instead of just disrupting the trade. You know, some of you know what I mean by that. You know, there's a lot of fake, just like there's fake orphanages, there's fake human trafficking organizations. But the real deal almost always invariably comes out from the Jesus story. So I'm not here to beat up on American Christendom or Western Christendom because I've seen the best of it. But I acknowledge the worst of it does a much better job at getting their PR out. Won't you say that's true? In America, the worst of Christianity seems to generate the most captivating press releases. And part of that is humans are instinctive beings, and we tend to remember the negative or the positive because the positive isn't going to devour the sheep like a wolf is. The positive won't devour you. You don't have to beware the positive. You have to beware the dangerous. So we as beings, we as mammals, are, have a proclivity to focus on the negative, number one. Number two is I think there's a spiritual power behind obfuscating the good things of the kingdom with the, the naughtiness of people in the name of Jesus. Um, this, uh, 
the thing is, if you, you look at Gandhi's life and, and a lot of elements, you know, it's not as, as perfect as the pictures, the movies, and the quotes say it. You know, I had a pretty complicated relationship with women, many, many, many young women that I find to be a little bit awful. Uh, but I do think he spoke a prophetic word that it sounds just like what Isaiah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, would have said about Israel in the Old Testament. Um, so I want to read Matthew uh, 16, uh, 13 through 28. Uh, before that, I want to pray, and let's hope God comes. Father God, uh, I pray that you would bring clarity to your son Jesus, and thus clarity to yourself, God. I pray, God, of where we have uh, functionally lived in ambiguity towards Jesus, God, that we would move towards it, uh, living Jesus explicitly, God. And I pray for those of us who accept you, teacher, but struggle with you at Lord, God, I pray you would captivate us with the beauty of your lordship. Pray for those of us who are captivated by your salvation and your conquering death, that we would also be captivated by your teachings, God. Wherever on the spectrum we need to move, that we would come to the whole holistic agenda that you give us in your victorious and risen Son, Jesus. In the name of Christ, amen. So, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted on heaven. Then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I'll stop there. Word of the Lord. I've got a part two of this passage I want to read too. You, the big screw up of Peter. So Peter, there's, there's controversy over this, and it's amazing, like, Christians have actually, whole churches have divided and traditions have divided over this verse. And I think in the process, when this verse is talked about, the coolness of it is missed. And the question is, um, and if you can go to the Greek, it's ambiguous here, just to say I'm not going to resolve a 2,000-year-old dispute or more of like a 1,600-year dispute, is when he says, upon this rock, is that referring to what Peter said or Peter? Is, 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 is Peter going to be the whole foundation of the church, and therefore Peter was the first pope, and that's what the church is built on? You know, just, on a, I'm not going to try to persuade, like, I won't have stamina in an argument on this issue. I will say one thing, it's Peter didn't have any way of overseeing the church in India or Africa, where it went, by the way. The church in Africa was much, more, was much more established, the church in India was much more established before the Vatican existed. So, and they didn't have the internet or GoToMeeting go or uh, Zoom or whatever it is people use to connect. So they were relatively independent. So I tend to be in the crowd that says he's referring to the message 
that the whole kingdom is built upon Jesus is Lord, is Son of God. Now, the thing is, my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, and Orthodox brothers and sisters, they believe that too. They believe the kingdom of God has built that, as well as believing this other thing. So I'm not bashing, and if you are Catholic basher, Protestant basher, Orthodox basher, just stop. Uh, there's much more in common to love um, than to criticize. But this passage is, gives us a, the different layers of ambiguity people had about Jesus, and then it makes the most unambiguous statement you can make about Jesus. All right? Um, that Jesus is Lord, which means Jesus is king, Jesus is boss, Jesus is master of the universe, or whatever, however you want to put it, that is Jesus. And that is controversial enough. But we get to Peter, and we find out there's alternate takes on what Jesus is Lord might be. And we see this in the life of Peter as demonstrated here. So I want to continue reading um, Matthew 16, uh, 13 through... Uh, Trying to get the right uh, verse here. I picked up the wrong notes here. Okay. Matthew 16, 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be rose again. But Peter, probably feeling pretty hot, you know, on his high horse right now, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So talk about, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Peter's got the ultimate resume filler right here. Jesus, I'm going to build my kingdom on what you just said. And then he calls him the Satan, which means the accuser. The, like, the, the title that he uses for the adversary, meaning you are working against everything kingdom's about. You saying that suffering is a part of my lordship is a false teaching. So even with people that say Jesus is Lord, there's a difficulty in accepting the suffering servant. And this is where I would say this is uh, the self-help Jesus doesn't deliver because the more you follow him, in many ways, the more you will suffer. And what I mean by that is the problem with following Jesus, just I'll be honest, you know, you may want to disengage right now, is the more you truly follow Jesus, the more human you become. The more you follow Jesus, you will become more of an emotional person, not less of an emotional person. Because as Jesus heals the wounds that have been inflicted to us by various traumas, he opens up the parts of us that have closed down. And so whatever capacity you have to hurt, truly following Jesus will increase your capacity to hurt. Now, you may have someone who's not following Jesus that has calamity after calamity hit them, but they've, they've maybe applied a good numbing strategy. You know, uh, whether it's chemical or other, uh, other pursuit, there's a lot of ways you can numb and turn down your herder. You can turn down your ability to hurt, sometimes permanently, through numbing. But following Jesus will leave you more vulnerable to pain, 
And for some of us, it reactivates our long, fallow tear ducts. But I don't think necessarily worse things happen to you is things hit you more. Your heart, you know, I say the ultimate, most people journey through life getting a thick skin and a hard, get a thin skin and a hard heart. It means we protect our heart, but everything makes us angry. The journey towards Jesus gives us a thick skin, meaning it's really hard to make us angry, but we have a heart that breaks very easily. A thick skin and a soft heart. And I can't imagine selling a book or an idea based on having more pain. I mean, how many church conferences have had the word dominion in their name? There's a very popular one, Dominion 2020. Dominion this, dominion that. There isn't like suffering 2024. Register now and learn the glorious path of suffering. But listen, if you engage suffering, you'll get secondary trauma. And I know a lot of you have secondary trauma because of the Jesus lifestyle. A lot of you have become close friends with people who have endured horrible sexual violence, who have endured you know, domestic violence, who have endured poverty, and your heart breaks. You hurt more. The feel-good Jesus that we see on TV, and you know who the people are. I don't need to give you a litany who the people are. You know who they are. But, by the way, feel-good Jesus isn't just for flaky, Pentecostal, word, faith, name it, claim it people, by the way. The feel-good Jesus is also in the moral superiority crowd that has all the right doctrine and is able to point out everyone who's a heretic, right? So whether it's the person who never does anything wrong and knows how to put women in their place, or it's the Pentecostal flaky-dakey die with the Learjet, both of them are putting a group of people in power and trying to insinuate that they're not supposed to be challenged and feel the burn. All right? Because the teachings of Jesus aren't there. Jesus, Peter confessed Jesus is Lord, but lordship meant to most Jewish people is God's going to send a military, anointed military leader who's going to destroy our enemies, just like some of the imagery in the Old Testament. I said this, conveniently skipping over all the parts about the suffering servant. You know, by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53. All these passages about the servant suffering. And there is a Rorschach test uh, that is present in the Old Testament. It's like, you see the God you want to see. Now, depending on your tradition, so uh, some people hear that, like, uh, when you read the book of Judges, it's really weird. You get two contradictory messages. You have Jesus, God saying, I will drive them out before you. Inspired scripture. You have people saying, God says kill them all, including their kids and animals. Inspired scripture. By the way, those are, those are little different messages. If you, notice, if you have an issue with that, you know, Kings and Chronicles. God motivated uh, David to take the census one. Satan motivated, and there's all these gymnastics people have done around these passages. But it's clearly, uh, let's just make it simple, go to Genesis. God says, don't eat of this one fruit. Eve says, God says, don't even touch it. There you get a hermeneutic key that there are two storylines, but if you read it, you see a trajectory. You see the sacrificial system, kind of like methadone. It's like, yeah, this drug isn't that great, but it's going to get you off of child sacrifice, which every ancient culture that we know of did child sacrifice. Hey, you know, make burgers instead, kosher burgers. 
But then almost immediately, God's like, I just don't care. Your sacrifices, they do nothing for me. Or even point, by the way, your sacrifices give me a gag reflex because you're not caring for the poor. You're not caring for immigrants. So God's obviously sacrifices, you see a trajectory. And then you get what I call the apex of the Old Testament. And this is, I'm saying it in one area because it's succinct, but it's all over uh, the later part of the prophets. And that's this. Micah's saying, so, after all this, what does God require of you? To do justice, kinetic justice, to love mercy, to walk with humility. Notice how you can do justice and not have it figured out. I love that. If you walk with humility, you're saying, I don't know a lot. And that doesn't stop you from engaging in justice, because that's how the kingdom works. We are not finished. We are not finished. We're, we can't be loved anymore because we're perfectly loved, but we can be continually transformed. And, but even in our broken state, wherever we're at and on the spectrum right now, we can do justice and love mercy and admit we're not finished. But Peter wanted a military messiah, and frankly, so do many in America, and I know I certainly long for a military messiah at different parts of my Christian walk. I, I remember my uh, my weird, twisted thinking about the first Gulf War. I thought, oh, this is where Babylon is re-arising, and, you know, the rapture is going to happen here, and within this year, and before this year, all this is going to happen, and stuff, and um, then realize all, all, the, all our Christian brothers and sisters that were uh, bombed the smithereens in the process of us trying to bring about God's kingdom in there. By the way, about one-third of the population of Iraq were Christian. If you don't know that, the same with a lot of at least at one point, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern places. Like, uh, got to know a ton of born-again Arabic people. And talk about being caught. By the way, this Israel thing, you can say that Hamas is living out an agenda that is Satan incarnate in our world. And that is true. And you can also say apartheid, a policy of apartheid since 1948 against Palestinians is wrong. Both things can be true. This isn't, you know, uh, the Steelers versus the Browns. You've got to pick one. You can say, I, I don't like either team, and I want everyone to know they're loved and precious to God. Just to say that. That's, I actually don't think there's really any other option. Uh, so these options we had, but I've seen the danger I've seen. I want to kind of talk about the, not the people that want the military messiah Jesus without the ethics, but the people who like the ethics. I hear more things said about the teachings of Jesus, oftentimes about my friends that don't say they're Christians. But the teachings of Jesus were never addressed primarily to a person. They were addressed to a community. The teachings of Jesus were not ever addressed to a community that had an easy time getting along and had a proclivity to be fast friends. They were initially dressed to his disciples that couldn't keep it together without fighting. And Jesus is like, do I have to separate you guys? Well, I will at the Great Commission, two by two. But right now, uh, sorry, that little clip just derailed me. But uh, Jesus brought together a core proto-church that could not get along. He specifically recruited from every element of the political spectrum and the socioeconomic spectrum, including someone who was a sellout to the Roman Empire and another person who was terrorist adjacent and put him in the same small group. 
So, by the way, uh, you know, most times when you would form a coven or something, you'll form a people that share a strong, strong interpersonal affinity, and then it breaks down the first fight you have. The church is meant to be people that without Jesus, you're not going to get along. I was talking to a dear friend of mine last night, is we should be the safest place to have conversations where we unconditionally love one another and we greatly disagree, in that we all think we have something to learn from one another. This should be a safe place for that. But individual, solitary, practiced spirituality goes against the entire flow of the scripture, in that God called a nation to pursue, to create a Jesus who would call the entire planet. God created a nation to produce a Jesus who would call the entire planet. And the church, it, every bit of the New Testament is either addressed to uh, leaders of churches, churches, or a prominent member of a church that needed to let his slave go so he could be a leader in another church. They all had to do with a community. Because guess what? We don't have to agree on everything doctrinally to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ and make a difference in this world. Amen? But what I've seen is I've yet to see an unstoppable justice movement that have ever erupted from personal spiritual journey alone. I've yet to see the abolition of slavery that came with cherry-picking the ethical teachings of Jesus but not saying Jesus is boss. Because here is the deal. No matter how ethical you are, there is one way where the teachings of Jesus are going to tell you no. If you read the Gospels, it's not always going to be, yeah, 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 go Jesus, I agree. If you really marinate in the story, something's going to come up in your friendship, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the depths of your heart, in your parenting. Something's going to come up where Jesus wants you to engage in something or give up on something that you don't want to engage in or give up. And that's where the lordship works. I, I had a friend who grew up in a very, very conservative uh, form of evangelical Christianity, and he really started zealously following Jesus. But it came to the point for him is he had a legitimate reason to not want to follow Jesus. And that was he knew he had to, in his heart, forgive someone who had abused him. By the way, forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. I never wanted him to see that person who abused him again. But he had to get to the point where he said, Jesus, I'm outsourcing all the evil they did to me to you, and I want to focus on growing in my compassion. And the thing is, that lack of forgiveness progressively turned this person into more and more of an angry person. It led to him falling back into severe alcoholism and self-medication to the point where he became a solitary, complete solitary, because the level of alcoholism and coupled with his anger, you know, there's happy drunks out there, but coupled with his anger meant he could not have any relationship. And he's totally isolated right now. Because he followed Jesus as a uh, uh, is a teacher, but Jesus was not boss who can tell you no. And I want to tell you guys, we have so many ways of sneaking in, acting like Jesus is Lord, and being cafeteria Christians. And I've seen so many of my friends turn to more of a pagan view of Christ. And I just implore you, is the proof is in the fruit. Look, study history, Study history, Wesley, look, look at, that's one reason I'm not an atheist, is I study church history. 
yeah, yeah, there's a lot of naughty popes there, but there was always the mystics and the monks and the, the priests and the nuns and uh, the hermits and the, the bread bakers who upended their entire culture with their faithfulness, even if the leadership was corrupt. Like, not many people can name who was pope during the ministry of influence of Julian Norwich, who never left her little cubbyhole in a church. But this dear woman of God had no official clerical status, and she changed the world to this day when very few people can name who was pope. That's how Jesus tells stories, by the way. The justice tradition of the church has always been preserved by the mystics not by the politicians. So in studying that element of the spiritual formation tradition, I'm like, wow. I mean, you want to look at the secret origins of what made William Wilberforce who he was? You have to study the secret story of Granville Sharp. And you see the, the mystical scholar, entrepreneur of Granville Sharp, and you realize that person who most people don't know changed the world in ways if you have three hours, I'll tell you a few of the stories, right? Friends, as you are discouraged in faith, and as you are inevitably going to be more discouraged in your faith, this election cycle, when's the last time someone who's been elected president hasn't claimed to be a serious follower of Jesus? Right? I mean, whether it's like, you know, the whole protocol used to be before you bomb the hell out of someone, make sure you have coffee with Billy Graham the night before and get a Photoshop, right? a fo- photo opportunity, right? Uh, it, Nixon was actually caught on tape saying that much. You know, when, when, you know, it's funny when they declassify all the recordings and writings of a president, you get to see what they really thought of people, and you saw what Nixon really thought of Billy Graham. It was pretty embarrassing for Billy. But the idea that um, we're going to have our faith dragged through festering piles of crap for the next couple of years here, as they have been almost, it seems on seemingly here. That's one of the reasons I don't think I could be a Christian without Cambodia. I love seeing how people are able to joyfully follow God and acknowledge they're under a dictatorship and not stop. Friends, keep marinating the Jesus story, but this will keep your faith strong. If you keep allowing Jesus to challenge you to love, your heart will not grow cold. If you keep allowing Jesus to challenge you to forgive, your heart will not grow cold. If you keep following Jesus in being around those that are suffering, in relationally engaging suffering, and financially engaging suffering, and with your talents engaging suffering, your faith will not grow cold. It will not, and listen, if not, you're going to lose it. I'm, 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 I'm about six months from losing my salvation. I'm not saying about whether I'm going to heaven or hell or any of that stuff. I'm, I'm about six months from losing my Jesus enthusiasm. If I don't have my keep it real time with the real Jesus, and uh, the first step, one of the first steps for people is just say, I don't know much about, you know, I, I love Jesus, I hate the church. That's one of the first steps uh, moving towards the pagan perspective of Jesus. And I said, no, you hate what people have done in the name of the church. But listen, I can tell you enough churches that you don't want to say I hate the church because you're going to have to say that to my friend Sreso come in Cambodia. You're going to have to say that to Desmond Tutu. You're going to have to say that to uh, Granville Sharp. You're going to have to say that to Octavia Hill, who the church led her to inventing social work. 
You're going to have to say that to Gregory the Great that invented therapy and psychology. You're going to have to say that to all these people who were, you're going to have to say that to F.D. Morris who invented public education for the poor. You're going to have to, if you want to say hate church, all of that happened in the context of a body of people speaking truth to one another. Just make sure the body that comes together fully embraces the teachings of Christ, not just God's boss. Because it's easy to make Jesus your boss if you put words in his mouth. Amen? So let's stand.